This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Lovely, warm welcome. So great to see you all this evening at this event sponsored by the University of Edinburgh. My name's Viv Groskop. I'm a writer and comedian. You might recognise my voice from Radio 4's Front Row and Saturday Review. I would say you would recognise my face from the posters for my show, uh, but it was more recognisable in the first week of The Fringe than it is now. Uh, we're here to talk about and celebrate this wonderful book by Joe Swinson. It says, this isn't just a book, it's a call to arms, an action plan for a world of equal power where every individual can make their own genuine choices free of any constraints imposed by their gender, something I'm sure no one here would disagree with. Jo Swinson is a Member of Parliament and Deputy Leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2012 to 2015. She served as a Government Minister in the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills and was Minister for Women and Equalities. Her achievements, introducing shared parental leave and legislating to require gender pay gap reporting. She was first elected at the age of just 25, representing her home seat of East Dunbartonshire for a decade until 2015. She wrote this book on a break uh, from her parliamentary duties and then was happily re-elected in 2017. Please welcome again Jo Swinson. Fabulous. Um, Joe, when I was thinking about your biography and the little break that you had, which you so usefully used to write this book, I was thinking, well, you are at least one good reason for us to have had an election in 2017. Um, how was that for you to have spent so long uh, in, in office and then to have to leave? Uh, yes, I mean, it was obviously uh, not a, a, a choice to have that break, but I tried to put it to good use. Um, I, I mean, it was obviously, you know, losing a parliamentary seat is a really tough experience for anyone that loses their job, is made redundant. Uh, that is, it's, it's literally life-changing, and uh, it's not just in terms of the logistics and the, the financial, it's also in terms of the, uh, your, your sort of your mental health, the, your well-being, and, and how you think about yourself. The question I used to dread after the 2015 election was, what do you do? Um, until I had an answer to that question, it was, it was really tough. Um, but I, at the same time, when I look back on that, I think it was, it was a positive experience to have gone through um, because I learned a lot about myself. I had a lot of time for reflection, which is really hard to get during the sort of hustle and bustle of politics, which doesn't really give you a break. So um, although it wasn't, it wasn't my choice, I actually look back and I think, well, I, you know, I used that time well and I learned a lot from that experience of, of losing. And, and I think probably um, in our, our moments when we think about it, it's often the tougher experiences in our lives that we learn the most from. So when you say you dreaded the question, what do you do? Were you able to respond quite quickly? Oh, I'm writing a book. Well, um, how did that well come about? yeah, I mean that was one of my one of my answers because I did quite soon after the election suddenly the idea came to me that I wanted to write um, write the book Equal Power, and in fact the title came to me uh, fairly soon. 
mm-hmm. uh, after I started the process. Um, and, and it was really just because I felt like I'd gained an insight into the problems of gender inequality, particularly through my role as Minister for Women, which I did alongside uh, my job in the business department. And, and I really wanted to share that because um, while I was obviously looking for, you know, what was my new career going to be, I really didn't want to stop trying to change the world. You know, that's what drove me into politics in the first place. And although clearly after the 2015 election, I wasn't going to be able to be changing the world as a member of parliament, I thought there must be other ways to do it. And I thought sharing what I'd learned about gender equality and how we can all take action to make that uh, more of a reality would be, would be my way to change the world. Mm. And away from politics, you have also had a lot of other things going on in your life. And because of your work uh, in shared uh, shared parental leave and so on, I don't feel it's unfeminist <laughs> to ask you where you're up to in your family plans, especially because as a new mother, you were affected by this um, vote swapping yeah. thing that happened earlier this year. Could you explain to us a bit about how that's fitted into the narrative? Yeah, I mean, you know, Parliament has um, has processes that were designed centuries ago and updating Parliament's processes always takes a long time, whether that's on sitting hours or the long-running campaign to get a nursery on premises, which eventually was won in 2010. And of course, one of the things which is still outstanding is the way in which politics and uh, being an elected member of Parliament works for new parents, for, for mothers and for fathers, because there isn't really a mechanism that is satisfactory to deal with uh, with leave for MPs. And when there's a you know, very big government majority, like there was under the Tony Blair government, for example, it doesn't really matter quite so much because uh, the votes don't tend to be on a knife edge. I mean, I think there's still a, uh, a genuine case to be made that a constituency would still want to have representation and, and, and votes counting. But particularly with a, 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 you know, a, very, uh, a government with effectively no majority that is therefore only able to have a majority with uh, the deal that was done with the DUP, then it does mean that some votes really do come down to a knife edge and therefore the mechanism of pairing is is just outdated and, and doesn't really work. So that was the case, you know, it can be an issue during pregnancy. I mean, I voted on Brexit um, two days after my due date. Uh, probably quite fortunately, baby was late. Uh, uh, and uh, I thought, well, you know, this is an important vote, so I can go and vote. I will go and vote. Um, but when he was uh, just over two weeks old, there was another uh, knife-edge Brexit vote, and uh, and I was paired uh, with a Conservative MP who then voted. And, and it just goes to show why we need a different system, which um, which would be proxy voting so that when you had an MP who was on parental leave, they would entrust another MP of their choice to vote on their behalf and therefore their vote would still be registered. And you know what, this is something which the House of Commons actually discussed earlier this year. Uh, One of the committees then went away and did a lot of work on how technically that could work and then produced some motions that Parliament could vote on. But the government that would have to put those motions to a vote is really just delaying this and kicking it into the long grass. And and it's not good enough because we need a better solution. I mean, I've just had a baby, uh, but uh, there's another two MPs who've also just had babies, another one who's due in September and another one due in the new year. So 
you know, this, this is a problem that's, that's going to continue and we need a better solution. Mm. Just to make it clear, you're based in Glasgow and you have a four-year-old and your littlest one is My littlest one is uh, seven weeks old. So Seven weeks old. So wow. I'm, I'm walking the walk with shared parental leave, um, which, uh, you know, as you said, I introduced in government. So I think it's really important for both mothers and fathers to, uh, to, to take time to bond with their new babies. So uh, this week, and, and next week I'm doing some constituency work, doing my annual summer tour, which I always do. My husband is uh, looking after the baby and, and the four-year-old, uh, which is probably more work, actually, the four-year-old. Uh, and, uh, and, and he's um, he's doing that. And then later in the year I'll have more leave. And so we're going to share it between us. Hmm. So you are very much at the sharp end now of these policies that you've campaigned for. And as you say, it's a very crucial time in politics. How did you find out about the mess surrounding that vote swap? And how did it make you feel? Um, well, I found out uh, when uh, I think I received a message, um, uh, a text message. A journalist had noticed that uh, Brandon Lewis had voted. I tweeted that um, I'd been paired with him. And so uh, I think, as you, anyone reading my tweets would have recognised, pretty, pretty furious. Um, but, I, but, I mean, I was, I was angry, and obviously it wouldn't have changed that specific um, outcome of the vote. But, but it, I think I was... I think what's most frustrating is that this is something which there was a possibility for there to be a solution before all of this happened, that the government had had deliberately said, well, we don't think that's necessary yet, or it's not urgent, it's not a priority, so we'll just, you know, kick it into the long grass, we won't have this vote, this discussion. Even now, they've They've tabled a, a debate on uh, proxy voting for September, uh, or they've said they will, um, but that's not going to be a debate where we actually vote to change the procedure. So then that will kick it on to another three months later. So it, it's the lack of urgency to actually make the change, coupled with then the government not making the existing system work properly, that is, is so frustrating. And you know there are people within the government who, who see the need for change, but but it is just a bit of a shambles, really, how, how it was handled. Mm. And to go to some of the themes in the book, which obviously you wrote before you necessarily knew that you were going to be returning as an MP, how has the reception been to the book? I'm, I'm trying to ask a slightly devil's advocate <laughs> question about... Do we really have time to care about feminism and equality, which is obviously incredibly important, when we're at a moment of political crisis? Well, I, I think there's a couple of answers to that. I mean, this is, as, as anyone who uses social media will know, I mean, this is um, a question that's regularly posed on, on Twitter. You know, how can you possibly care about two things at once? You know, if you're, uh, if you're posting about gender equality, you can't possibly care about Brexit. Um, and of course, uh, you know, shock horror, it, it is possible to simultaneously be worried about multiple things that are going wrong in society. Um, and indeed, that's one of the reasons that, you know, I, I feel so committed to, to, uh, to politics and democracy and trying to change things, because I think there's a lot of things that do need to be changed. I also think that there is, um, it's, it's kind of... Um, strange when you, you look at some of the forces that are arranged. I mean, there's lots of people that, if you take Brexit as an example, voted for Brexit, you know, for perfectly legitimate reasons. I disagree with their analysis and their judgment, but, you know, it, we're in a democracy. People have different views. But there is a strand of, um, of kind of 
uh, ideology, which I think is rising in prominence on the far right. Um, and it is one which has a bizarre amalgam of lots of different points of view that you would think wouldn't need to be correlated, but they are. So, you know, the same people that are really anti-feminism are also really anti-immigration and uh, often will end up posting quite um, racist stuff. And, you know, you can kind of perhaps understand that there's a, you know, there's a link there. But then the same people will be, you know, climate change deniers. And, you know, I just can't in my mind get my head around what the, the apparent link is. But, but the, same, um, the same accounts, or in some cases bots, um, you know, seem to, or, you know, individuals who like to pop up on our television screens and, uh, and, and make these uh, points of view, they seem to sort of tick all of those boxes. So in a sense, I think um, gender equality has been you know, pitched into uh, a lot of these debates about the kind of society we want to live in, about the culture that we inhabit. And there's a, a strand of thinking which is trying to very much reverse the gains that have been made by feminism. So I don't think this is just about how do we get from where we are to progress and have more gender equality. I think it's also about how do we stop ourselves from going backwards. We should not ever think that the things that we have gained, the progress that our mother's generation and our grandmother's generation achieved, we should never think that that is somehow um, a given and guaranteed uh, because there are plenty of op um, uh, examples where people are trying to roll back existing uh, women's rights and, and it has to be resisted as well as agitating for further change. Mm. There's a lot of anger in this book, but there's a lot of positive solutions as well. Can you tell us about some of the areas where you feel that is most keenly needed and where things are starting to roll back, where you'd really like to see change? Um, well, I think, uh, I mean, probably the most difficult chapter to write and probably to read uh, is the chapter on violence. And, uh, I mean, that is an area where, you know, we we really do have to, to recognise the, the very, very real um, experience that, that women have and uh, you know it's and it is it's a continuum so you know you'll get people saying oh well you know why do you bother about you know street harassment and you know that's you know people being catcalled well so what and you think well you know if a 15 year old girl is scared to walk to school because of or change it has to change her route because you know she does not feel safe walking down a particular path um because of the you know what's getting shouted at her and who knows if it's just going to stop at a shout uh, or move on to uh, to physical violence as well um, then, then that is a problem. But it's also, it's a, a sort of gateway, if you like. It's about recognising that women, you know, are there to be objectified, to be um, judged in that way, um, and are kind of the, the sort of, there's an entitlement uh, that men have to women, which is acted out in, you know, in relationships, in domestic violence type relationships, whether that's of, you know, control, financial control, emotional control, uh, and also physical violence. It manifests itself in sexual violence, and it also, you know, at the the other sort of extreme end, you know, when a society, when civilization breaks down in cases of uh, conflict and, and war, then it's women who bear the brunt of it. You know, rape is then used as a, a weapon of war. Um, this control over women literally becomes uh, weaponized. So. I see that as all part of the same issue of violence against women and girls. And, uh, and it, it is, um, it, it's hard to tackle 
you know, there's, there's challenges in terms of uh, how you provide support to people in those circumstances, but there's also the, the fundamental issue of how do you tackle that attitude that somehow women are there for, um, uh, for, the, for the use of, of men and that entitlement that comes from that. And I think that's even harder in, uh, in our current climate where we have you know, access, for example, online to really extreme hardcore pornography, uh, you know, the click of a button. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the climate that children are growing up in actually makes some of these challenges more intense than they would have been several years ago. Mm. I know you campaigned a lot on these issues when you were Minister for Women and Equalities as part of a coalition. Did you feel you had the ability to change things and achieve things there? Or did you feel you were talking about these things, but nothing was actually being done? I, I mean, I, I'm proud of things which I did achieve. You mentioned the gender pay gap reporting, which I think is, is really putting a rocket into uh, industry and many organisations that suddenly are looking at uh, at issues that they didn't think applied to them and actually recognise that the gender inequality is a problem in their organisation. Um, and, and I was working on these issues, uh, sometimes being blocked on issues such as the you know, media sexism, which feeds a lot of this. Um, but it, Ooh, it who was, was blocking you? Who oh, was well, the key blocker? We were in a coalition. <laughs> um, we want names. Uh, you know, um, it was. Uh, I mean, sometimes this this uh, it sort of went to number ten. I think at the time when uh, we wanted to do a, a really. Um, thorough review into media sexism. We wanted, uh, you know, an esteemed journalist to lead it. So it wasn't, you know, government telling the media wow, what I to do. Wow, I wonder who would qualify as an esteemed journalist. Well, uh, well we didn't, uh, you know, we, we had various event. names in the fray. We didn't have someone agreed to do it, but okay. it was blocked by um, the then Secretary of State with Responsibility for Equality, Sajid Javid. Um, and, uh, and that was very frustrating because I think that could have, uh, that, that could have actually led to some really exciting uh, developments. I mean, basically, this was not a priority for the other half of the coalition. You know, I'll make some, some sort of exceptions. You know, there was ministers like Nikki Morgan, who I worked with, who really was trying to, to do good stuff, and she was sometimes finding that she was blocked. And I think it's sometimes the case in... It's often the case in politics uh, that uh, I think the sort of... It's women that get asked about gender equality issues. So when they're part of collective responsibility that, is, that they've themselves got blocked within because you know, their power is not as, uh, as all-encompassing as, uh, as we might want, uh, then, then they end up almost being the sort of poster girl for, for the bad decision. And I mean, I remember when Harriet Harman was uh, Minister for Women and she'd been trying to push to get uh, more flexible working um, legislation through and apparently at the time it was Peter Mandelson that was blocking it um, if, if the newspaper reports are to be believed and you know having experienced government I can just imagine those rows and I can just imagine Harriet making the case brilliantly and forcefully but you know funnily enough the you know bloke who was in charge of the business department Peter Mandelson who had all of the you know, political Machiavellian uh, methods will have um, will have have won the day in those battles, and you know it's it's easy to see how that happens because you know no political party has got it sorted on on gender equality yet. Mm. Um, no organisation has got it sorted. No country in the world has achieved gender equality, and uh, and so the women that are involved in fighting for these things are themselves meeting brick walls too. Mm. 
Forgive my ignorance, but I'm thinking that currently there is... Is there a minister for women? There isn't at the moment. There is. Is there? Right. There is. Um, so uh, there is Victoria... Atkins is the Minister for Women at the junior level and it's just changed at, I think it's Penny Mordaunt now right. um, because it had been Amber Rudd and then okay. obviously when she resigned so it's Penny Do you now. feel that the work that you've done is being sustained there or undermined? How do you look at that picture now? Uh, I mean I, I think bluntly government at the moment has very little time, resource and energy to put into anything other than Brexit and whatever your take on Brexit, I mean, that's just a sort of basic truth. It is a massively complicated, um, uh, hugely difficult endeavour, and it is eating time of ministers or civil servants. And in fact, one of the things that, I mean, I'm personally very anti-Brexit for a lot of reasons about what it's going to mean for the future of our country, but I also think that the opportunity cost is really significant at a time when our government should be thinking about how to make a more equal society in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of uh, class, socioeconomics, um, when we should be thinking about how to the, you know, harness the challenge of technology and the opportunities that come from that and how we should be regulating differently to catch up with uh, the way in which technology has moved on, how the labour market and employment and the world of work is changing. All of these big challenges. And the government has, has no time or attention to be able to give to that. And that's not even me saying a sort of huge criticism on individual ministers, because I can see how when they've got, you know, a ministerial box that's got a massive amount to, that has to be done on, on Brexit every night, there's still the same number of hours in the day, you know, wh you know literally when are they going to be able to, to do that? So, so I think that is one of the, the big concerns at the moment mm. about government in terms of gender equality and indeed a whole range of other issues. Mm. But there was a moment in the conversation that I felt that the Liberal Democrats were leading the positive case for Remain, which you've mm -hmm. briefly summarised brilliantly. That's a case we haven't heard very often and certainly not recently. Do you feel that you as Deputy, Deputy Leader are given enough opportunity to speak about these things? Do you feel as if the Liberal Democrats are being drowned out in the, in the conversation? Because I feel sometimes they are. Yeah, I mean, would I love the Liberal Democrats to get much more uh, airtime in the media? Absolutely. And, and that is very you? difficult. Why don't you? Well, I mean, probably one of the biggest reasons is because we have 12 MPs. And so the broadcasters, um, they've got their sort of it formula. It doesn't seem to stop Nigel Farage. No, uh, yeah, very true. <laughs> um, well, in which case, it's not and has never been an MP. Uh, indeed. I, I mean, so, I mean, it, there's, a, there's a sort of serious point within that, though, because mm -hmm. one of the reasons is that there's less appetite at the moment for people saying reasonable, sensible things, um, which I like to think is what the Liberal Democrats tend to do. Um, if you're going to say something really extreme and shocking that everybody's going to hate and uh, is going to sort of get lots of people calling into radio shows and, and engaging with their views on social media, um, and therefore perhaps your programmes are going to be more watched and if you're just chasing the ratings, then that's perhaps why Nigel Farage is being um, invited on so much. But if you're actually going to say, well, you know, this is a problem and here, here are what we think are the reasonable solutions, we can appreciate that on the other side there might be this view and we need to take that into account. You know, th the world in which we're living in is a world of 
polarization. It's not a world that is rewarding the, the nuanced view on something, the sophisticated take, the, the, the well thought through argument is, is not the, the world of, uh, you know, Twitter hatred, uh, which is, you know, what gets the, you know, the, the higher engagement, the higher likes and, and, and more attention, you know, the people that shout loudest and um, are perhaps, um, you know, the crudest, the crassest, they're the ones that get the attention at the moment. Well, this is really interesting, isn't it? Because that, I think you've diagnosed the problem, but as Liberal Democrats, you've got to find the solution. You've got to find a cut through. You can't just stand in the sidelines saying, oh, we're really reasonable and sensible. <laughs> only, <laughs> only people would listen to us. This must have yeah, changed yeah. a lot since you first became an MP age 25. Yeah. Yeah. when it was much easier, the whole national conversation was on a completely different level. What are you hearing on the doorstep from your constituents? You mentioned going out mm. and about in your constituents at the moment. How has this changed for ordinary people? Because I think a lot of ordinary people, you've mentioned yeah. social media yeah. a lot. I think the majority of people, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, they don't necessarily follow the news anymore because they're bored, and B, they don't uh, not necessarily on yeah, social yeah. media. So what, what do you hear from people? Uh, well, I think, uh, I mean, a lot of people do get their news from social media, and so there is a whole issue around, around Facebook and therefore people's echo chambers and, and, and those bubbles, I think, are, are quite worrying. But I think what I'm hearing from people, I mean, people are still concerned about local issues. They're concerned about, you know, when the, the, um, the, the road that's been shut for ages is going to be reopened and what the issue is with car parking and, you know, what's happening in terms of the, the local services. You know, these are still issues which engage people, people still at that community level um, are engaged. But when people talk about the national politics, I have to say, most people I meet are... Are, they, they want something better. I mean, they look at it and they think it's a mess. And I mean, this is people from all different political backgrounds and, uh, and, and allegiances sort of look and with a sort of weary, um, weary look in their eyes, just sort of go shake their head and say, well, you know, what, what is this coming to? And I mean, you know, we have this situation, I mean, it's, it's a bit geeky, slight, you know, to, to mention this as a Lib Dem, perhaps, but, you know, I mean, the voting system that we have... Oh, you're going to mention you know, proportional know, representation. Tick! But, you know, it is, you know, the voting system that we have, you know, does lead to, you know, safe seats where lots of people get re-elected without having to, uh, to really get you know, most of the constituents on side. Um, it leads to complacency. Um, it, you know, it, it doesn't lead to, um, to to perhaps an engaged act of democracy right across the country in every seat. And so when people say, you know, how does this happen? How did we get that election result? You know, how do these people that we see on the television sometimes keep getting re-elected? And, you know, sometimes the answer is, well, they're in a safe, true blue Tory or in a, you know, flag where anything with a red rosette is going to get elected. And and so we don't necessarily get the, the vibrancy that we need in our our, our democracy, but you know, we're, we have the system that we have, and, and so you're right. We need it's it's up to parties like mine, the Lib Dems, to to get out there and to make that case, and that's why on Brexit at the moment, you know, we're running the biggest ever campaign that we have run outside of an election to really make the case for a people's vote, because that's I think the opportunity that we have as this country for those of us that look at Brexit and look at the way the government's handling it and shake their head in dismay to say. Perhaps if the politicians aren't managing it, then it needs to go back to the people to say whether or not what they've come up with is good enough. It's kind of making me sad. I'm thinking if this is the biggest campaign you've ever run, <laughs> it's sad because it's, it's hard to get this cut through that we're talking about. 
What are the issues uh, in the Liberal Democrats at the moment that you, aside from Brexit, or in your own constituency, your own life as a politician, that you feel you are making gains and getting somewhere? Well, I mean, I think there's, uh, I mean, I've got colleagues who are campaigning on all sorts of different issues from environmental issues like plastics in the ocean, my colleague Alistair Carmichael, uh, my colleague uh, Vera Hobhouse on a gender equality theme has just had success with her upskirting bill, which the government ended up um, adopting so that uh, following the lead of Scotland, where taking photos up a woman's skirt uh, it was not a criminal offence in England and Wales, you were, you know, free to get on and do that. And uh, that's now something which the government is, has taken forward as a result of Vera's campaign. Campaigning. Um, my colleague Leila has been uh, making strides on the issues of homelessness. Uh, you know, I think we are making progress as a group of 12 MPs um, on a wide range of issues. One of the things that I'm particularly exercised by and in leading a, a commission that's going to uh, last over the course of a year to come up with some radical policy solutions is about technology and artificial intelligence and the way in which that's changing our society because I don't think there's enough focus in politics on this. I don't think there's enough literacy in politics on this. I mean, you, you know, if you saw the congressional hearings in America when Mark Zuckerberg was giving evidence, you know, some of the questioning just belied a, a total lack of understanding of tech by the politicians. And I don't think here it's necessarily different. But of course, that matters because the rules that these companies have to abide by are written or often not written uh, by, by, by parliament, by politicians. And we do need to look at the relationship that we all have um, with the technology companies, whether that's taxation, competition, uh, and indeed, you know, what are the ethics of the way in which more and more uh, decisions are being made by machine algorithms? How can we have confidence that those are written in a way that is, um, that is, is you know, fitting by proper moral standards. You know, we've seen cases where used in recruitment, uh, people are sifted out of the job uh, search process on the basis of their gender or race, uh, which would of course be illegal in terms of employment law. But when you're farming out to a machine to do, um, can you actually have confidence that that, that is being done really in a way that's compliant with the law. There's a lot of these big ethical issues that, that come up, which, as I say, I don't think politics is addressing properly. So, um, so if Liberal Democrats can um, go and find some of the answers to this, then I think that's an important role for us to play. I feel as if what you're describing is the Liberal Democrats working really hard in the background, doing all these hmm. important things, whilst, meanwhile... It's kind of fiddling while rain burns. No? Well, I mean, I think some of these things are, are longer-term issues that we need to find answers to. But I think the, the big issue that is now is Brexit. And, and, and that is, um, as I say, you know, the, the campaign for a people's vote. And there's been rallies. And How um, realistic do you think it is that there's going to be movement on that? Well, I think what's been really positive is already this year is there has been movement. So if you look at the polls, there's now a majority of people in favour um, of having a people's vote on the Brexit deal. Um, we haven't yet seen movement in the main two political parties. I mean, not in terms of the leadership of those parties, but there's plenty of MPs uh, uh, on the Labour side and, uh, and some on the Conservative side who have come out and backed a people's vote. The Liberal Democrats are in favour of it. Um, 
the SNP yet to be convinced, but we're working very hard to try and get the SNP to back a people's vote on the Brexit deal. Um, and I think that it's important that we that we try and amass that um, broad uh, coalition of support for that because and there's you know um, thousands, tens and tens of thousands of people across the country who have been attending. Uh, rallies, signing petitions, campaigning on this. You know, for people in the audience who are interested, please add your voice, join that campaign uh, for a people's vote. Uh, because I do believe that the opinion is is turning. It just feels like we're in a bit of a race against time. So we need to we need to accelerate that as much as possible. Mm. I don't want to ask people how they voted, but show of show of hands in the room if you care about Brexit. Oh, thank God for that. Right, okay. It doesn't matter. Don't mind saying no judgment which way you care, but it's good to know people Mm. care. Uh, Interesting to know the response to this book that you've received going around the country, lots of action on social media about it, hashtag equal power, people reporting their stories. I know you wrote this partly for young women uh, and to redress some of the balance of the things that you don't see changing. What are the stories you've been hearing about the things that young women care about? Well, I think uh, what's been... Uh, what young women have been uh, reading it and coming, uh, you know, responding to me and sending me emails. And sometimes, you know, there was this, this woman that said, you know, thank you so much for writing all of this down. It, it sort of crystallises things that I feel like I've been thinking, but that I, I did, you know, I didn't almost feel empowered to, to think these things and to recognise recognise that they were true and to read it like that. that a lot of people have said that they kind of knew that there was things that were not quite right, but they found when they got into an argument with somebody, they didn't have the sort of facts at their fingertips. They didn't have the uh, the ammunition, if you like, to make the case because somebody says, oh, yeah, yeah, but, oh, yes, but, you know, women have equal rights now. Oh, yes, well, in law. And because gender inequality is often so invisible. I mean, a good example would be recently, you might have seen in Tokyo, the medical schools were just found that they had, in fact, for many years, uh, been capping the proportion of women who were able to become medical students um, at 30%. And therefore, there were lots of qualified women that had been applying to become doctors who had been being turned down just because of their gender, which is absolutely shocking. But of course, for the women that had been in the medical profession, they'd kind of known there was something wrong. But, you know, they hadn't been able to prove it. And so they'd just been dismissed um, as, as, well, you know, it's just the women aren't, you know, there's not as many women coming forward or they're not quite as good as the men. And I think that's often the way. It's easy because so much of our media and our commentaria is still dominated by men it's easy for women to think that they're the ones that have got it wrong and that, um, that, it, that it probably isn't really as much of a, a problem and that they're just being silly. And I think what some people have said to me is that this really, by laying out all the facts and you know, all the evidence, really makes the case and gives them the confidence to have that discussion, whether it's with their boss or whether it's with their you know, uncle round the, you know, Christmas dinner table um, or whatever the, the sort of social situation is. But the other thing that's been quite interesting is getting a response from men who have read the book, um, where I think uh, it, it's sometimes less telling them what they already know, um, but, but perhaps more a bit of an insight into something which they wouldn't have known. Because do you know what? If you haven't um, had that fear when you're walking home at night from the bus... Um, where you have your your hand around your key and you're sort of risk assessing everything and you're really worried and when you get home you've got that sense of relief. If you haven't experienced that, then 
why would you think other people did? Um, or in terms of some of the sexist comments that get made to, to women, if you're the kind of guy that would never make those comments, then you wouldn't assume that other people would make them. And, you know, very often when they're made, they're not made uh, in an environment where lots of other people will, will hear them necessarily. So you might not have heard them either. So I think for, for many men, it's been a bit of an eye-opener in terms of uh, things which they haven't personally experienced, but has given them a bit more of a, an insight into, uh, into the, the problem. So, um, so it's, been, it's been good to get people's feedback on it. Well, the other interesting thing about the book is that it's not so much about feminism as about equality, which is a really interesting change in the whole gender conversation I think that's happened over the last 10 years. Feminism used to be a lot more inclusive, now it's become very divisive. And there's a brilliant bit at the back of this book where you quote, um, I love these men, Nick says, never use the word babysitting to describe what fathers do. Always speak with quiet gratitude about the privilege of being a parent. I quite want Nick's phone number. <laughs> and there's, uh, there's a lot of really interesting quotes from men about how much we patronise men, we assume they're not mm. feminists, we yeah. Yeah, treat fathers as babysitters when they're, all they're doing is, is being parents. And I wondered how important that was for you to bring that into the conversation because that is actually something that a lot of feminists, in inverted commas, reject is well, this idea. I, well, I, I think that's interesting. So, I mean, for me, feminism is inclusive. I, I you know, proudly label myself a feminist and uh, embrace the word. But I did recognise that putting the word feminism on the front of the book would probably limit its audience. And so I think there is a bit of a brand issue for feminism at the moment. Um, and, and I think part of that is, uh, is, is sort of hyped up by this if you like, the other side, the people who are not keen on having equality like to hype up and pretend that feminism is some kind of man-hating endeavour uh, when, when it's, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. So I think that the, you know, inclusiveness uh, of men and women working for gender equality, for me, that's feminism. Um, and, and I think those of us who are proud feminists should, should not easily give up the uh, the, the ground to, um, to to those that that like the, that would like it to not be inclusive, but I think I think men are central um, in the same way that you know we rightly make the argument that in any workplace, for example, you will be losing out on half the talent if you only employ men and if you don't have gender equality and if you have a male-only team in the boardroom, your company is going to do less well because you don't have diversity of thought and perspective. If we have the fight for gender equality being um, mainly populated by women, then we're also going to lose out on that different perspective and those different skills and, and, uh, and those attributes that, that men bring. So I do think it needs to be an inclusive movement. And I think there are, although most gender inequality is negative for women and girls, I do think there's parts of gender inequality that are negative for men and boys. And some of that's becoming more obvious now in terms of the uh, greater focus on men's mental health um, and the high suicide rates uh, and the, the way in which those judgments made against you know, men who happen to be parents and yet face, um, you know, uh, quite a lot of almost stigma or, you know, assumptions. And perhaps in the way that women had to 
pioneer in the workplace to be taken seriously, you know, men have to work hard to be taken seriously in their role as fathers, or indeed within the workplace to be able to uh, argue for the kind of arrangements that will enable them to fulfil both roles. And so I, I think it is really important that men and women work together on this. Mm. Great. I want to open up to questions in a moment. Um, But the last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, I'm just imagining what it must be like to be an MP, especially in the current climate. And I'm thinking, what do you do when you go to... It's your place of work. You must be there. How how often are you there? Like, how many days a week? It's Monday to Thursday. Monday to Thursday, when you're not on shared... Uh, maternity, paternity, maternity, parental leave. Uh, what do you do when you're turning up and you're having to work with people like Boris Johnson? <laughs> do you just, like, why do you just not want to hit them or something? I know that's... <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you, you, chose, you chose one of the, the sort of worst examples there. Um, I, I mean, so, so what I would say is, normally, with most people in Parliament, even in different parties, I take the view that, that actually, although we disagree, I can generally say, look, their views might be rubbish, um, they might be incredibly misguided, but they do believe they're trying to do the right thing and they are at least genuine in their intention and we also might be able to agree on something. And, And that is for most people that I meet in politics... MPs, you know, councillors, party activists, volunteers across the different parties, that generally holds true. Um, but there are some, and definitely Boris is in the category, where my patience runs very thin. Um, because, you know, when you have somebody who turns up who, you know, I was shadowing him uh, as foreign affairs spokesperson for the Lib Dems when he was foreign secretary. And I, I mean, it was like he just didn't care about doing a good job. You know, he would go abroad and willfully insult you know, whoever he was visiting and not listen to the advice from the civil service, you know, diplomats about, you know, perhaps be diplomatic, Boris, you know, if you're the foreign secretary. And then, I mean, the time that I just got so furious at him was when he did a select committee hearing and, you know, Nazanin Zakari Radliff, you know, the British mum who is languishing, separated from her, uh, was then two-year-old daughter who is, you know, getting older all the time, was probably had her third birthday by now, um, uh, you know, languishing in an Iranian jail. And, and he gets it wrong in a select committee um, about what she was doing there and, and refuses to correct the re- record and refuses to apologise. Uh, and I just, you know, Fury, Fury doesn't even come close to, to describing how I, how I felt because it's just that total not caring attitude as if it's some kind of game. And it's not a game, it's people's lives. And particularly if you're a foreign secretary in those circumstances, it really is people's lives and, and you know, we deserve better. So I have to say that was one thing in Theresa May's reshuffle that I was happy about. I mean, I might have my differences with Jeremy Hunt, but at least when he makes gaffes abroad, it's only him and his wife that are going to have to patch it up later. So, you know, <laughs> that's definitely an improvement. <laughs> well said. That was, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall after that conversation, like... <laughs> Actually, I am Chinese, not Japanese. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, questions, please. I, I have not touched on the, the topic of Scottish independence purposefully, so if anyone wants to touch on that, you're welcome. <laughs> yes, there's a gentleman at the front here. Hi, Jill. Um, you talked about the importance of not going backwards, and I've got two granddaughters, and the pink and blue aisles in toy stores are now worse than when I brought their mother up. 35 years ago. Hmm. I also support my local team, Sheffield Wednesday, playing blue and white. 
20,000 supporters turn up in blue and white paraphernalia. Three seasons ago, they started selling pink and white scarves to support <gasps> a blue and white team. You know, we are going backwards on this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could definitely go in the, in the end chapter. Yeah. Excellent, yes. I, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. And, and it was the same. I mean, when I was growing up um, in the 1980s, um, you know, we, I think in the book we have the, the poster that Lego had from the 1970s, you know, um, it was not so much boys and girls separate. But now it is, um, I think, for very, uh, you know, commercial reasons, this has, this has happened. And then you get into the situation where the retailers will say, well, this is what people want. But the point is, if you're not giving people a choice then how do you know what people want if actually that's all you can buy for your little girl? And I think there was a really brilliant example um, when it was about three years ago, it was while I was writing the book, there was a crowdfund uh, that was launched for uh, a book that was going to be uh, a book that would be aimed at young girls called Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. And it would take, I think, 100 stories of amazing women from history and current and it would have women illustrating them and there would be a page on each one and it was the fastest uh, supported crowdfunder in history and it's an amazing book uh, but what is really interesting is that now they've not just had Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls Part 2 but if you go into a children's bookshop you will suddenly find a range of copycat books which frankly is great so you've got women scientists you've got you know women uh, women who've been in uh, sport you've got women in all these different women engineers um, that are now being written about because suddenly somebody changed the rules and proved there is a market for it and the, the, the sort of the traditional publishing houses have responded. So I think when they say, oh well, this is what is choice, it's often not the case. But you need to push at them and campaign, whether it's by in the, the example where those people crowdfunded their own book or whether it's by consumer pressure by making your views known to these retailers to create that pressure for them to change because otherwise they just assume that that's what people want. Mm, great, thank you very much. Yes, question there. Hi. Hi, thanks very much. Um, you talked about the challenges for women in politics, and I wondered if you could talk a bit more about the Liberal Democrats who, in 2015, when you lost your seat, had no women MPs, have no women MSPs in the Scottish Parliament, um, and have been opposed until very recently to the use of gender quotas. So what are the specific challenges within the Liberal Democrats, uh, and particularly with a, a kind of Liberal Party? Uh, absolutely. And I mean, it's an issue I've been working on in the Lib Dem since 2001. Uh, I, uh, as I, I sort of tell the story in the book of my conversion from in 2001 opposing uh, all women shortlists in the Lib Dems, um, believing that there was a different way of doing it by getting out there and encouraging more women to stand and become candidates. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot, I've invested a huge amount of energy in doing that, we, you know, with, with some good effect. We did get a lot more women candidates, but, um, but we did end up with no women uh, MPs in 2015. And, I mean, the loss of Alison McInnes, who was an outstanding MSP for us, and, you know, she wasn't the victim of uh, us losing a seat in Parliament. She was a victim of losing an internal party selection, which I, you know, still beggars belief to me how that could have happened when she was one of our strongest performers in the parliament so it, it was those events really in that experience that um, that made me change my mind on all women shortlists I still think it's better if you can achieve uh, progress without it but I think the level of uh, continued and intense political leadership necessary to make those changes is is one which uh, 
I didn't see, unfortunately, uh, in the last 15 years. I'll make the exception, actually, our leader in Scotland, Willie Rennie, who was actually one of those who helped persuade me to change my mind on all-women shortlists, really gets it. And he was prepared, and so few men will do this. I mean, I had, expl- I had a really good um, uh, phrase that was said to me about one uh, of our leaders that said, you know, he's, he's up for gender equality, he's up for it, up to and until the point at which he would need to make a controversial or difficult decision. And I just thought, yes, that is it to a T. That is absolutely it. And Willie Rennie has been different. He has, prepared, he has been prepared to put his own political capital on the line, to rub people up the wrong way, to have people in the party disagree with him and shout at him and get annoyed at him it, because he said, no, this is, this is too important. We need to do this. And so we now do have um, a woman shortlist, which has led to some improvements already at the election last year. We elected four women out of our 12 MPs. So that's a third, which is not good enough, but is better than we'd ever done before. In Scotland, we've got two men and two women MPs. And uh, we have, in terms of selections that have already happened, North East Fife, which is our top target seat in the whole country where we lost by two votes last time, so, so close, uh, has just selected an amazing woman, uh, Wendy Chamberlain, as our, our candidate there. So, so I think we're going to make progress, but, but, you know, like any party, you know, and I, I don't think we're alone in this, you know, we have not necessarily had um, sufficient buy-in from sufficient people uh, in leadership roles in the party both in terms of nationally leadership, but actually those kind of local leadership roles in constituencies up and down the country. Um, and, and that's what's difficult. And I know that those experiences will be ones that are you know, felt by women in other parties, um, even though it's sometimes not something that's very easy for us to talk about because it's about being critical about our own parties. But, but from my conversations with, with other women in politics, these barriers are very similar across the party divides. Mm. Great question, thank you. Let's take a question from just over here. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Um, I have a question about the um, importance of gender equality for your constituents and if that's an issue being raised a lot when you speak to, uh, to people on their doorsteps or uh, in surgeries. And if, if that's the case, what are they interested in? What's the, the issues there? What equality issues are people raising on the doorstep? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to conclude this answer with a massive action point for everyone in this in this room. Right. Um, I, I mean, I do get people who, particularly because of you know me speaking out about these issues uh, very publicly, who get in touch um, and are supportive of what I do on gender equality, and you know uh, whether that's people sending me an email or saying it to me in the in the street or whatever. Um, and you know, some often it will be people talking about you know what it means for their daughter or their granddaughters and and why they think that is so important. But as a constituency MP, this is not an issue which many people proactively raise uh, with me. Now, maybe that's because they know I'm already, <laughs> I'm already kind of sold on it. Um, but I actually think more likely is that it is not an issue that people often raise with their MP. And that is something that every single person in this room can do something about. Um, as a constituency MP, if you get five or ten people writing to you about something, you, know, you notice that. You notice that. Every letter or email that, I, that I receive always gets a response, and I'll always try to take some kind of action to try to, uh, to, to help the individual or, or take up the issue that they've raised. And I know that most MPs will, will take a similar view to that, and they do listen to what's in their mailbags. But, you know, if, you know, if there's a, a campaign about an issue about animal welfare, I will get dozens and dozens and dozens of emails 
um, I will get many, many more um, emails about animal welfare than I will about gender equality. And so that is something, I'm not saying animal welfare is not important, you oh know, it God. is. But, um, but, but this is something which, you know, everybody in this room can, can decide to go away from here and drop a quick email to their Member of Parliament. You can find their details online uh, very easily on the Parliament website or the Scottish Parliament website. Um, and, and just drop them an, an email. And it just, you know, two or three sentences. I'm concerned about this. And if you want to be specific about the particular area of gender equality, um, you know, then, then by all means, please do. But I think that is something which we, we could encourage more people to do because otherwise it ends up being seen as an issue um, which, which doesn't really agitate um, a lot of people when it comes to their elected representatives. Mm, thank you. Yes, another question just behind there. Let's go to one of those people. Lovely, thank you. What, what is your view about burkas? This, this is not a Boris Johnson question, it's a real question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you specified that. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is your view of burkas? So, I mean, I, uh, like, like many, it's, it's, it's kind of nuanced, which is, is not where that debate ended up. So, uh, you know, I, I do worry um, that some women possibly many women who wear the burqa. Though that said, I have to say, I, I think I could count on one hand the number of times I've seen the burqa in the United Kingdom being worn um, uh, if we're actually talking about the burqa, which is the, the full face covering. Um, no, I don't uh, think that's true for the burqa, actually. I think, there's I think a the lot burqa, of this burqa. There's, there's, uh, there's so there's a, first of all, there's a, I mean, Boris Johnson, I think, got it wrong. He talked about letterboxes. Um, but, but actually, the burqa is a, a full face covering, which has a sort of gauze mesh for seeing out of. I think what Boris meant to talk about was the niqab, which is a face veil where the eyes are visible. Um, and, uh, and then there's the hijab, which is, you know, the headscarf. And, I, I mean, in terms of burqas, you know, I don't want any woman to be forced to wear something and I don't want any woman to be told that she can't wear something. Um, and so I don't think it is really for the state to be going around um, legislating on what women should or should not wear. There's obviously some, uh, you know, exceptions to that in terms of health and safety. You know, there's places where you have a lot of, you know, dangerous equipment where you can't have, you know, long flowing hair that's not tied back or, you know, long flowing robes. Um, you know, there's circumstances where the face needs to be seen in, in you know, security. Um, but, you know, basically, we should not be prescribing what women do and don't wear. And in some of the countries that have followed this, you know, we ended up in France where they banned the burkini, which is basically like a wetsuit, um, where, you know, you had that picture, some of you will remember, with the armed police standing over a woman on the beach with her family, demanding that she take clothes off. You know, I mean, what kind of liberal society does that? So and what I think is really interesting about this is it is where there is a flashpoint um, of misogyny and Islamophobia. And it's not about having a discussion about an item of clothing that men wear. Um, it's not even about face coverings, because do you know what? The people that are arguing about this don't say anything about motorcycle helmets that you know, have visors that you can't see through. So it is actually about a stick to beat a religion with. Um, and, and women being the convenient vehicle for that. And the thing that does my head in is that these people that sort of write to the rescue and say that they're really against the burqa because of women's rights, 
You know, where are they when, you know, women's refuge funding is being cut? Um, where are they when there's problems of, you know, gender inequality in the workplace and, and equal pay? They're nowhere to be seen, or if they are going to be heard on these issues, they're saying it's not a problem. So, um, so it's, it's used as a convenient front uh, by people like Boris. There is an issue, and I think what we should hear are the voices of Muslim women talking about the burqa to the extent that it is debated in this country. But given it is hardly ever seen in this country, the amount of time that is spent debating it um, is, is frankly ridiculous and is, I think, a product of Islamophobia and misogyny. Mm. Well, on... Uh, yeah, on... On that very apt defence of liberal values, I'm afraid we have to draw to a close. So sorry to those of you who didn't get a chance to ask a question, but you can join Joe right now in the bookshop, which is just next to the left after this room. Uh, as I'm sure you'll all know, at this festival, it's one of the only festivals in the UK that does this, all of the book sales, the profits go direct straight back into the festival because they're very canny here. It's a brilliant thing to do. So if you buy a book, it reinvests in the festival. I can't recommend this book highly enough. Thanks to all of you for being such a great audience. Thanks to Edinburgh University for sponsoring. But most of all, thanks to Joe Swinson. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.